0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio.
1: Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, resilience on radio. Broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on SustainableLens.org and on OAR.org.nz.
2: Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on the radio brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. Each week, we talk with people making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their sustainable lens. Last week, we talked with both Mawira Karatai and Philip Alexander Crawford, who are at respective ends of their Doctorate of Professional Practice Studies into positive relationships positive partnerships with the community so we thought it would be a good idea to get them together and to see where that went and today we're doing a bit more of a deep dive on that conversation and seeing who else has talked about that. So we'll start with Mowera and Philip.
0: I think that one of the things that contributes to the fact that we still haven't got the partnership thing right is that those who are in decision-making positions in our communities at the moment have gone through school and they have heard a version of history. That's the colonizers version of history. So their decision-making is based on that. Their thinking is based on that. Their worldview is based on that. Um, I think that you're exactly right. In 20 years' time, things are going to be different because now we're actually going to start teaching the real version of Māori history or New Zealand yeah. history, and so those those people that are going through school now will be in those decision-making places, and they'll be coming from a completely different perspective. Mm. So all of the decisions up until now have been from a very colonised perspective.
2: Phil, mm. so you are talking about the importance of the is it pre-negotiation, pre... The relationship before the contract? Invitation to treat.
3: <laughs> really? Yeah, it's pre-contract. Yeah. And
2: is talking about unconditional positive regard hey. at a... Societal level. Mm. Are you talking about the same
0: thing? Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I was Quite just that. Yeah, and uh, and it works at that individual level. It works at that societal level, but it's exactly the same thing mm. that we, we come together and we listen and we share and we pre- we create a space where we can be honest with each other, mm. and from there we build on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah, i I. I when you when when people talk at the moment about "faka mm. so "faka is is now used uh, in two two ways. In particular, that I see, one is one is the the concept of of um, of sharing and opening up and and just seeing how you know presenting some vulnerability from your own person is to to, through that openness, then you can you can better bind or bond together as a as a or group. The other one, of course, is um, when you turn up to a hui and it's fa'afafanona tongue time, and so it's a process, it's a methodology as well.
4: Exactly. So
3: I wonder how that's going to build into my study as well. Um, you know those concepts which are age old um, around. Building relationships and yeah, fa'afafineonaunga is is one of those which is just such a powerful thing. Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering also how that methodology gets will appear or needs to be built into into the to the pre pre contract negotiation between Maori and non Maori. Well, I don't I, I don't want to keep I don't want to boil it down to contract, but it is it is a space where I come out of so.
0: I've, um, I've had made this observation over the last 10 years or so that we've moved away from a dictate, dictatorial kind of space where some people who have a mandate will dictate that this is how things are going to be to now we really do have this relationship- mm. relationship-based decision-making. And it seems quite new mm. and so fragile, but I like it.
4: Yeah.
0: I like the engagement. Like, people are actually asked for an opinion now instead of told that this is how it's going to be. But I think there's also, I've observed in some organisations, a little bit of virtue signalling. Look at us, we're asking, but we're actually not interested in what you say, but we're asking. Yeah. Yeah, so it'd be good to, I don't know how we call people out in a way that is supportive Mm. so that that doesn't put them off actually putting more effort into being more genuine in their reason for having the process of engagement.
2: Lots of the partnerships that we're talking about are not greenfields partnerships they're the ones that are perhaps broken perhaps struggling along and the partnership has to be one of restoration or regeneration is is that a different place to start with or or is that what you can use to bring people together
5: Mm.
3: I've got a I've got a sense that that common causes will will bring people together. You, you, in my experience, quite a, you quite you you often see within school school environments uh, groups coming together to raise money for a shared purpose. Um, whether that's you know on the smaller scale, a teams going away on a school trip, through to um, buildings or. Or fuddy, or um, or larger pieces um, construction. Um, so yeah, I, I am wondering whether it was one of the things that I I wandered around the UN um, sustainable development goals as to the possibility of those being used as a as a methodology to identify not only whether whether Um, two different groups coming together shared those uh, goals or philosophies but also I wonder whether it's a way of identifying uh, from organisational points of view the priorities that they would place those things what order would they put those in and whether, whether there is some some benefit to match the two groups um, I guess, yeah, ratings of them against each other mm. because I suspect if if they were uh, uh, totally opposite in order, then there's no shared kaupapa and so therefore it'd be thanks for the great hui, but see you next time maybe not, versus actually we do have enough in common to be able to to move forward together and let's keep exploring that based on those prior those common priorities so that's definitely something that i think the sdgs could could bring to to the conversation because i do think it needs more structure i think it needs some methodology or framework that allows those conversations to occur with more structure um, because of course uh we all we're all busy people and and we are involved in so many groups aren't we mm, yeah, That yeah. that um sometimes uh cutting to the chase faster could be quite helpful
5: mm.
2: come together Mawera and Philip were talking about the importance of having shared value sets and understanding that purpose behind the partnerships. Let's see what other people have to say about that. Let's try first David Bent who was at the Forum for the Future.
6: ...which we're trying to put into practice I change as well, uh, but it's time to learn about some more. So the the journey there is uh, one the key thing is the move away from which I hope that forum has had something to do with a move away from framing things in terms of responsibility which rather traps you in ethics and duty and you have to hope that people share your value set to a framing which is based on sustainability how will you be successful in the long term and even if you're a rabid Milton Friedman business of business is business even if you're at that end of the scale if you want your business to be successful you have to pay attention to these issues and so that transition is the big one and the shift in how we've been trying to create change speaks to that transition
2: so let's do Forum for the Future 101
6: yeah so Forum for the Future we're a uh, mission driven independent non-profit and we uh, exist to uh we work globally with business, government and others to solve complex sustainability challenges. We've been going, I think it's 17 years now, and I've been here for 11. And across that time, we've tried to fulfill our mission in different kinds of ways. As I say, right from, and now, our, we're really trying to fulfill our mission is through system innovation, and that expresses itself in some different parts. So one is the work I lead, which is with business usually one-on-one, but not exclusively, making individual businesses go further on their sustainability journey, so they're creating system change. The other part is we have a focus on the food and energy systems. We have a food and energy teams. Each team is pursuing change in those systems in slightly different ways because those systems need different stuff. Mm -hmm. So in the case of energy, particularly here in the UK, the energy system is very stuck with a small number of large players who say that change can't happen and so we're trying to be disruptive there and we ran uh, we initiated and are as the secretariat to a community energy coalition which is trying to show that you can have energy owned locally uh, made by renewable sources especially wind and solar where local communities take more control of their energy supply and we're we're sort of the key fulcrum in a coalition across many different actors there in the food side uh, food companies are in a way a bit more exposed they can see that their supply chains are more exposed and so our work in food has been more in picking off food commodities and helping that value chain value network to understand how are they going to be more successful in a future dominated by sustainability and most recently working with the tea industry. So we use scenarios to understand what will, tea, what might the tea industry look like in 2030. Therefore, what would be a sustainable vision? Therefore, what should the tea industry be doing now in order to drive change towards sustainable tea? And that's given rise to a number of different what we call innovation platforms, where different parts of the tea industry are trying to work on different aspects of delivering that vision. So business one-on-one, food, energy, and then we also have um, what we call our system innovation lab, where we are trying to experiment with the cutting edge of creating change of a system level. This has many, many different mm. <laughs> aspects to mm. it, as any lab should, um, and we are increasingly focusing on, within the lab, how can you scale up what seems to be working, what we found and what... Um, the Shell Foundation's come to us about a year ago and said, "Is we have we, Shell Foundation, like a lot of development agencies, like a lot of philanthropic trusts, and like a lot of businesses and governments as well, we've got pilots which seem to work, but then those pilots never seem to go anywhere. What can we be doing in order to we, the the initiator of those pilots?" To scale those up so that there is system level change and over the last year we've been looking at well how do you scale up impact coming out of that we've got a, a sort of framework and we're also well, we have part funding we're looking for next, uh, to match funding on setting up a scaling up living laboratory where somebody could bring to us a pilot somebody could bring to us some sort of pioneering practice which is working a small level but it's now a question of instead of it being three villages or eight whatever it might be so that it becomes tens of thousands so so.
2: David Bent there who I talked with at the forum for the future apologies for the noisy staircase that we were sitting beside talked to him in 2014 talking about not just partnerships but the values behind those and the challenges of scaling Those sorts of partnerships, those sorts of relationships. I talked to Cathy New in 2019 at the University of Lancaster. She has similar ideas about the relationships between values and scaling, the importance of the personal value and the organisational value.
7: Yeah, they're a a charity. They're actually a a national charity, national UK charity, based in Newcastle. And their remit is around eradicating fuel poverty, or energy poverty as it's more widely known. So we did an array of projects, and I worked particularly on some projects called the Technical Innovation Fund projects, which were all about installing innovative energy-saving technology into fuel-poor homes to basically improve people's life and it was a f- fantastic project because they're people who aren't traditionally your early adopters and, and the people who get to try out new technologies and it was really interesting and useful to see how those transform people's lives and also how what some of the barriers were to, to that really so working with people who might have Alzheimer's or who might not have English as their first language how you actually explain to them how technology works and how they can make the most of that That's not the way things normally work in sort of academic research, you tend to practice on people around you, so it's good.
2: When you move into a new area, from wherever you were before that, butterflies or something, (laughs) what's the knowledge that's transferring?
7: Uh, I don't know about knowledge, I suppose the values are transferring, so those values about making sure whatever you're doing is um, net positive, so the environmental sustainability is one of the values that definitely transfers, making sure that it's socially just, so making sure that you're considering all the people who might be involved, they're definitely things that transfer, but as far as knowledge goes... Often, I think that's one of the things I quite like. I quite like being out of my comfort zone and having to acquire specific knowledge. There's probably some skill transfer. Which, yeah, I'm sort of getting people together, making things happen. That attitude to problem solving is probably transferable, but the knowledge is often quite different.
2: Where do those values come from?
7: I think from the Probably the same place everyone's values come from, really, from uh, growing up, from education, from family, from friends, from, from reading, from politics, all of that sort of thing, come from a, a long line of socialists.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't think that, I, mean, I, I suppose that the whole notion of fuel poverty is a social justice in its own right. But to take that even further and focus on particularly vulnerable groups within
7: that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I don't know, why really. I suppose it's still those groups who are difficult to tackle. So even when you have um, fuel-poor communities. One of my favourite projects, the, the most brilliant project I, I worked on, was working with a traveller community who were living in park homes um, in the, the northwest. And that's quite a difficult community to get access to and, and to gain trust with. And it's also a really valuable community. The actual sort of value that we brought to people's lives was enormous really. Sort of not just in terms of fuel poverty, but in terms of wealth creation and health impacts, all sorts of things.
2: It's interesting that the the areas which we perhaps find the hardest to work with or to do research with on are actually the areas that need it the most and where there's the most impact, potential for impact.
7: Yes, yeah, and I think a lot of it is around accessibility and translation. One of the projects I'm working at at the moment is called Energy in Schools and it's about empowering different stakeholders in a school to make better use of data to save energy and the biggest issue is... uh, Technologists and, and tech firms actually talking to people in schools because they almost speak a completely different language. They have completely different time frames and they work in really different ways. So you need people who can translate between those worlds, I think.
2: So I was talking to Morgan Williams a couple of weeks ago who was the, um, was the New Zealand Commissioner for the Environment. Ah. And one of the things that he raised is that Lots of the people for whom things like energy poverty or fuel poverty is a is a problem, and in terms of if we're wanting to make sort of changes to society, quite often we end up picking the the low hanging fruit and, and fixing the things that you know the the the, the middle class people that are yeah. happy to buy solar panels or whatever yeah and it's actually when we get past that there's actually far more impact to be made in the in those harder to reach communities yeah definitely but one of the challenges is that those same people are busy scraping a life together yeah and don't have headspace for things like I could use a bit less energy if I was to to do this thing here
7: yeah
2: so I'm not sure if that's an education problem or if it's a how would how do you see that?
7: I think you're absolutely right. And they're not called hard-to-reach communities, you know, for for nothing. That is the point of it. And people, a lot of people have really chaotic lives, you know, um, people who might have health issues or issues with drugs or, or memory loss or all kinds of things like that. So one of the things that the NEA did, National Energy Action, on this particular project was work in partnership with local councils and other organisations so one of the things that we did with some people in the traveller community and this is sort of one of the case studies were things like supporting them to get a national insurance number which meant that they could then claim pension credit and supporting them to get access to grants to change over their boilers, working with them to change their energy supplier and the, the overall impact of all of this stuff that we put in was that they were thousands of pounds a year better off so it wasn't just the fact that their, their living environment was a bit warmer and a lot more energy efficient it was absolutely transformative in lots of ways and I think that happens through working in partnership because you can't just rock up to someone's door and say hello, you don't know who I am but can I just come in and you know, install this technology in your home so you've got to work in, in partnerships in different ways and I think that's quite difficult sometimes in academia we're not very good at it.
2: I don't think I'd quite realised how unwell I felt during that visit. That no, was actually in Glasgow we recorded that. Today Here is a hand heat. Let's divided. work together. Here is Steve Clare in London. to the,
8: uh, the Maker-hacker movement, for example, where people can, can create and share. The 21st century library to me can and should be a vibrant, essential part of any community. There's but it, but it, it won't work if it's simply um, run by volunteers and I think that's the challenge is how you can turn such a library into something which at least is partially a social enterprise something that generates money whether it's through renting out space we've got a member in South London that's got a computer recycling business linked into its libraries for example people bring all computers in they drop them off at the libraries the, uh, the, the three libraries linked into this network they've got a computer recycling business as part of that, and they refurbish them and sell them to um, uh, disadvantaged people uh, within the community. That generates um, enough surplus to employ one and a half people. Um, there's all sorts of ways that um, libraries can become uh, much more entrepreneurial, much more imaginative, much more challenging, and be important in the society in which we live rather than as a say being something which really in many ways belongs to the past.
2: Okay, I've got lots of questions running around my head and I'll, I I'll try and make them coherent. If something's not working when it's being run by a council or a government agency yeah. why should it work when it's being run locally? Great question. Again, sorry for
8: using cliches <laughs> but um, when we talk about community asset transfer it is about transferring land or buildings into community ownership. And I absolutely agree that if nothing else changes, if it's only the ownership that changes, then it's not going to work. A service or a a building that isn't working is still not going to work if all you're changing is who owns it and who runs it. Transformation, not transfer. So I think the real challenge and this is what we work with our members to do, is when a community looks towards take over a building, refurbish a building, you need to look at different ways of using that building. So if they take over a redundant town hall, for example, maybe 100 years old or whatever, you, you don't just keep using it for what it used to be used at. You look at using it for all sorts of different things. That might include business startups. it might include uh, arts, cultural things. It's about doing things differently. It's about you know, getting local people involved, drawing on their ideas. Um, again, jumping sideways a bit, I think one of the challenges we've got, certainly in this country, I dare say it's the same in, uh, in New Zealand, government policy tends to be focused on, on deprivation. It tends to be focused on what's wrong with the community, um, you know, a deficit-gap model. I think you need to turn that round you know, what's called asset-based community development, ABCD. You s- your starting point has got to be what are the assets within the community, the people, the skills, the networks, etc. And in my experience, every community, no matter how challenged or how deprived, always has a huge, rich seam of potential, of creativity. If you keep telling people there are ways to space, if you keep telling people that they have nothing to offer, if you keep telling people that they are a failure, um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, one of my previous jobs, I worked for a, a training agency in East London. Uh, 80% of our learning group, it was, a, it was, ironically, it was a women's only training project, run, um, 80% of our users were from black and minority ethnic communities, um, the majority were lone parents, and so many of them came in the door with the attitude, you know, I'm a failure, I've got no control over my life, I can't do anything about it. That mindset, you can actually turn around in 48 hours. And once people start recognising that they can do something about their lives, that they do have choices, that you always have choices. Um, Sometimes it was remarkable, you could literally see somebody just growing like a a flower bursting into into a bloom. And I think the same thing applies to communities. Um, If people don't think they can do something, they won't try. If people think that they can do something they will. And that's why it's so important for us to to link people up, to link communities up. Um, Many of our members are extraordinary people, but they were ordinary people until they became extraordinary by doing something, by taking action, by refusing to accept no as an answer. It's
4: a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic. A kind of magic. One dream, one soul, one prize, one goal, one golden glance of what should be, it's a kind of man. one shine.
2: Young, I talked to her at the University of Bangor.
9: ...things from getting worse, which is the sort of negative side of saying whatever we do <clears throat> must have a positive impact. Then there's integration with the, with the well-being goals, but in our case also integration of whatever we do into our own strategic plan, which has sustainability very prominently in it. Collaboration and involvement. So those are the five ways of working. Collaboration in particular, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but very often here in the UK and UK, uh, <laughs> that, um the UK in totality that collaboration is sometimes, uh, far too often, the um, suspension of mutual loathing in search of further funding. <laughs> and I'm sorry, that is not the kind of collaboration that uh, that's described in the act. You know, it really is about doing things together for mutual benefit, and that is actually very challenging because everybody's got their own agenda. And then there are seven goals. The uh, Welsh government would like to see a prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, and in the resilient, in the prosperous Wales and the resilient Wales it describes low carbon development of the economy in you know. Europe. And then, uh, so, prosperous whales, and resilient Wales, uh, healthy whales, in more equal whales, Wales of cohesive communities, uh, whales where the Welsh language and culture is prospering, and globally responsible whales. So all of those map onto the um, sustainable development goals, but it's quite manageable, and in their documentation, they have put those same goals in a circle. So in a, a, well, it looks a bit like a beach ball, actually, so we call it the beach ball. But um, it means that not one, you know, when you have one to 17, psychologically, one is more important than 17. So to us, having this in a, in a circle means that your globally responsible is equally as important as your prosperity your cohesive communities is equally important to being healthy, and the health ref- refers to people and the environment. So I think it's quite a, it's a challenging way of working, even though it's also, um, you could say, it's just common sense project management. Why wouldn't you do that?
8: <laughs> so so to, to what degree then, if there's these multiple goals, I can imagine in some cases they're competing with each other. Um, to what degree do you find that they're in competition and hence you need to make trade-offs, and to what there degree are, are al- they in synergy?
9: There are always trade-offs, and that's why the five ways of working is really important. Um, because, And, and I, my view is that we need to start with the principle, the, the pillars and the five ways of working, not just say, how are we addressing mm-hmm. these goals? Because if you do that, you'll just say, oh, well, we're doing this, 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 and this, and oh, well, a little bit of that. Whereas, if you think how are we integrating, collaborating, and involving, then you can start to move towards having a more integrated and balanced delivery of, on the goals. And it is challenging because the people want a quick win and the line of least resistance. And one of the downsides of the act is that local authorities... The good side is they have to do it. The downside is that they have to do it. Mm
5: -hmm. So they
9: have to do it. And so... um, Officers, busy people, will try to see how can we tick these boxes and what we really want to do is to move away from ticking the boxes. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, the idea of challenging people, how can you do this? How can you interpret this within your own context rather than somebody externally coming around and saying do this and a lot of people are asking oh we want guidelines, we want this, we want that and I'm thinking well why don't we just sit down and develop something not just for your sector but for you within your sector and if many, many people do that then there will be progress I think
1: one's going to spend time for you gonna watch you as you go From a house you didn't build and can't control Oh, you ought to spare your face the reason. Because no one's gonna spare the time for you You ought to spare the world you labor. It's been 20 years and no one's told the truth So
2: That is Vampire Weekend Obvious Bicycle. You've been listening to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. Last week we talked with Moira Karatai and Phil Alexander Crawford about their respective research into positive partnerships. And so we did a bit of a deep dive into the archive there. We've heard from David Bent, Cathy New, Steve Clare and Enya Young. Coincidentally, all of them were in the UK. You can hear more of each of those people on sustainablelens.org. That was Sustainable Lens. I'm Samuel Mann. I hope you enjoyed the show.
0: At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High-quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our centre for sustainable practice. For more information, check out our website, otago A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens.